So what we're doing in our evening service, and what we have been doing for a long time, is working our way chronologically through the Old Testament. When I say a long time, I mean since 2017. <laughs> we started in Genesis chapter 1, and we um, worked all the way through Genesis consecutively, 1 to 50, and then we worked all the way through Exodus 1 to 20. And so far, those sections of Scripture all follow chronologically one after the other in terms of the order of the chapters. But after Exodus 20, it's not chronological. Like 21 happens before 22, and 22 happens before 23, and so on through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Rather, what you have is a various collection of laws, as well as, as some narratives intermingled, some narratives which happen in numbers, which are recapitulated, repeated in Deuteronomy, and so on and so forth. So instead of just working chapter by chapter, what we have decided to do is kind of break it up chronologically. So we spent a couple years just studying the Old Covenant systematically. What is the nature of the Old Covenant? What are the laws pertaining to the Covenant? We looked at the physical layout of the tabernacle, the priest's garments, the various events in the Old Covenant calendar, so on and so forth. Then we picked up the narrative as the people moved from Sinai and wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And now they're on the cusp of going into the Promised Land. They are east of Canaan. And now, obviously, as we just read from Deuteronomy 34, Moses dies. And that's where we are in the narrative. And Joshua has already been anointed as the next human leader of Israel. And we're about to go into the conquest narrative. But tonight, we are considering Moses' death, which is recorded for us in Deuteronomy 34. And we are considering even more than Deuteronomy 34, which basically just presents to us the facts of Moses' death. Tonight, we're going to focus in on Psalm 90, which is a theological reflection on death. And in fact, it is Moses' theological reflection on death. As the superscript of Psalm 90 says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And so, in Deuteronomy 34, God takes Moses up onto a high mountain and he shows him the promised land. He says, this is the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And obviously we're reminded in this of God's faithfulness in keeping his promises to Abraham so many hundreds of years earlier. But Moses is not permitted to go in. And you will remember why Moses is not permitted to go in. It is because, as God says in Numbers 20, verse 12 to Moses, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. So the people are going to go in, but Moses isn't going to bring them in. And he's not going to bring them in because of his sin. So that is basically why God allows him to see the land. He's, first of all, just being merciful in that he's granting a desire, I think, of Moses' heart, at least to lay eyes on the land. You imagine, for example, if you were a grandparent 
and there was something really exciting about to happen to your grandchildren, and but you were sick. You might say, well, let me at least just see the grandchildren get to a certain point before I go. Something like that is most likely how Moses felt about the people going in. We know that even though the people who rebelled against Moses over and over again, Moses has actually been a very good human shepherd. Generally speaking, he's actually been extremely patient. He's interceded for them on more than one occasion when they least deserve it. So Moses' heart is with these people. So he's, he's probably just pretty glad to see the land, first of all, and just glad that the Israelites are inheriting it. Second of all, God is reiterating his faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. But third of all, God is being inflexible on what he has said, that Moses is not going to be the one to bring them in. Moses is going to die for his sin. And so Moses does, in fact, die. This is basically what Deuteronomy 34 gives us. But Psalm 90 is a reflection of Moses on death, all death. The very phenomenon of death. It seems that Moses must have spent some time, at some point in his life, thinking deeply and profoundly about death. And he writes for us in Psalm 90. Perhaps it was after God told him, you're not going to bring the people of Israel in. You're going to die. It might be that Moses really started thinking about his own mortality. As we study Psalm 90 tonight, even though the theme is uh, theological reflection on death, it really is not going to be a morose and downcast and depressing study. To the contrary, it's actually going to be quite helpful for us and quite encouraging for us as we work our way through. We're going to explore Psalm 90 in five points tonight, beginning with this first one, which is the constancy of God. The constancy of God for anyone who's no takers. Verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Who is our? Well, I think it is actually humans. I don't think that Moses is speaking specifically of the people of Israel when he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Some people think that the occasion of Psalm 90 was God's displeasure with the nation of Israel, perhaps at a time of uh, plaguing them or something like this after, he, after they rebelled against him. And that Moses is using we to describe the people of Israel. And when he says things like, uh, when he says things like, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. That he's saying something like, stay the plague. Now Moses is talking about Israel here and the temporal judgment and so on and so forth. But look at, look at some of the very general things he says. It, like, for example, in verse 3, you return man to dust. Right? Or he says, the years of our life, in verse 10, are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. These are not things which apply only to Israel. And so, because we see Moses speaking so generally through the rest of the psalm, I think the right way to take it is that Moses is reflecting on the situation of humanity in relation to God. So when he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Lord, you have been the dwelling place of mankind in all generations. 
as providence would have it we were looking at Deuteronomy 33 last week in which I was telling you that the eternal God is our dwelling place that he is like walls around us underneath are the everlasting arms he rides through the heavens to our help above us this spatial language that he surrounds us that he he protects us that he is our home certainly this is most true of believers certainly it is most true of those who trust in Yahweh and take shelter under the wings of Yahweh and turn from their sins who can say the eternal God is my dwelling place he rides through the heavens to my help underneath are the everlasting arms and yet we also need to account for common grace what, what other help is there but God when an unbeliever goes into the hospital and comes out again who is it that has sustained them throughout all of that? When somebody goes out to farm their fields and sun shines on the crops, but not too much sun, and there's a nice balance of rain to nourish the water, who is it that made the crops grow? Look, the Lord sends His sun and His rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. There is some sense in which the Lord is the dwelling place of all mankind. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Right? That God is our God. God is the God of those even who don't believe that He is their God. God is the God who sustains their heartbeat. God is the God who preserves the air in their lungs. God is the God who helps them in their farming. God is the God who brings them up from their sickbed and so on and so forth. Moses, I think, is recognizing that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture in a general sense. For it is he who made us, which applies to everyone, and we are his. There is some sense in which God is a shepherd, God is a creator. In some sense in which God is a father, some sense in, God, in which God is a dwelling place to everyone in all generations. He is, who else is going to be a dwelling place? Who does the unbeliever say is their dwelling place? If they say anyone but Yahweh, it's a lie. It's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and exchanging the glory of the immortal God for a created thing, which we read in Romans 1, we ought not to do. So there is some sense in which the Lord is the dwelling place of mankind in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There was one God in the beginning when Adam and Eve were in the garden. There is one God now. And guess what? He is the same God. And the God who would be the dwelling place for Adam and Eve is the same God who will be our dwelling place. And if the Lord Jesus should tarry and this world goes on for another eight or nine hundred years, our great, 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 great grandchildren will find that it is the same God who may be their dwelling place. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. He is the only shepherd. He is the only father. He is the only creator. He is the only dwelling place of all mankind. There is no other. If you reject Him as father, you have no father. If you reject Him as dwelling place, you have no dwelling place. If you think that in Him, or, or, or if you think that you do not in Him live and move and have your being, 
Well, guess what? You're deceived. There is no one else in whom to live and move and to have being. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. Constant. The constancy of God. The consistency, the immutability. Theologians say the unchangeableness of God. This is where Moses starts. But then he moves in verses 3 to 6 to the brevity of human life, which is our second point. (laughs) From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But you return man to dust. See the contrast there? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But we are like grass, verse 5, that is renewed in the morning. And in the evening, or pardon, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. And in the evening it fades and withers. Just here one day, gone the next. Right? We know how this happens. You just watch the color of the grass as the seasons go by. Right now things are pretty green. We've been having a lot of rain. But you watch, one week goes by with not too much rain, everything's brown. This is just how quick, how fleeting, how weak, how temporal the grass is. And this is like us. We are like a dream. Do you know know what you dreamed last night? Perhaps you remember. Perhaps you don't. Our dreams are often just total nonsense. We wake up, we we remember them for like 20 seconds. You know? You know, you're like riding around on a giant hot dog or something. (laughs) It's just like, uh, what nonsense is that? You let it pass from your mind, move on with your day and think, good riddance. It's gone, right? Our dreams are so, so temporal, so fleeting. We barely even remember them. They're not even worth remembering. 99% of the time, they're just absolutely ludicrous. A watch in the night, as, as watchmen take shifts, someone watches for a few hours and then goes to sleep, and the next one, a watch in the night just passes in a blink. And God says a thousand years in His sight are just like a watch in the night. He is everlasting. We are fleeting. And our whole 70, which is what it means, three score and 10 in uh, the Psalter that we sang, that's what it means, is 70. A score is 20. Our whole three score and 10, or if by reason of strength, 80, is like not even a watch in the night. Because a thousand years is like a watch in the night. So a hundred years is like a tenth of a watch in the night. Right? So, I mean, we're not, meant to, we're not meant to press this literally, but if we work that out, like a watch in the night being, what, like four hours? Right? 240 minutes? A hundred years is like 24 minutes. <laughs> in God's sight. <laughs> you know? Just put on, a, put on an episode of your favorite sitcom. That's like our lifespan in God's sight. Something like this, right? We're not meant to press this so literally, but just to give an idea of just how fleeting. Just scroll social media for a few minutes. That's what our lifespan is like to God, even if it's 100 years. Human life is brief. Human life is fleeting. Why? We move to our third point. The reason for human brevity And we move here to verses 7 to 11. For we are brought 
to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Listen, when Jesus returns, death shall be no more. The last enemy, Scripture says, to be destroyed is death. As John Donne, the poet, put it, even death will die. And yet, in the meantime, death is part of our experience. It's something that we have to deal with. And the reason that we have to deal with it is because of our sin. And by our, I mean humanity's sin. On the day that you eat of it, God said, you shall surely die. Look, until Jesus comes back and deals with death, the reason we die is because we are sinful people. Because we are cursed as a human race with death. We are under God's judgment. We don't believe this Lion King nonsense about the circle of life. Look, it's not, it's not, it's not a normal, healthy, wholesome thing that we just have to accept. That just makes us uncomfortable. But really, if we were psychologically healthy, well-adjusted persons who were a little more spiritual and a little less religious, we could just embrace the ebb and flow of human life passing to death. We could just embrace a little yin and yang and balance, right? We don't believe in this nonsense. The reason we die isn't because this is a healthy, normal part of human existence that we all just have to psychologically adjust to. The reason we die is because of sin. We live in a broken world. We spend our days under God's wrath. Psalm 90 and verse 9 says. Now this doesn't contradict what it says that there is no condemnation therefore for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're that I as a believer am still under God's wrath in a judicial sense that there's condemnation hanging over my head. What it means is that I live out my whole life in a world as part of a human race that is under God's wrath and judgment with respect to death. We're all going to die because of Adam's sin. This is the world we live in. This is our experience. Christ will rescue us from death in the sense that He will resurrect us. But Christ does not allow us to bypass death as believers. As though unbelievers have their bodies separated from their souls, but believers just get to bypass that disturbing experience. No, no, no. We pass our days in this broken world, which is under God's wrath. The wages of sin is death, and this is what the human race has earned. 
And so we are dying. This world is tending towards entropy at the moment. That things are coming apart. Things are unraveling. The climate is not getting more stable. I'm not trying to go politically left on you here. But it's not as if everything is moving towards balance and health and as if the holes in the ozone are closing and we're moving back towards a less polluted atmosphere and so on and so forth. Things are falling apart, things are coming apart. Like your knees, your back, right? Your joints, your eyesight, pollution in the air, right? Like things are coming apart and this is because we spend our days under God's wrath. The reason for human brevity is sin. So God is everlasting. We are brief. We are fleeting. And the reason that we are fleeting is because of sin. If we look at verse 12, it says here, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. This, our fourth point is this, the necessity of reflection on mortality. Now, some people don't like to talk about death. They get super awkward if you bring it up. When I was, when I was in the hospital for my appendectomy, I can't even remember exactly what I said, but I, I, just made, I just made some comment about like how like they were saying some of the risks of the surgery or something. They say it's like very small, but it is possible as well. We're all dying like slowly or more quickly sooner or later. I said like, I'm ready to go. You know, I know Jesus, I'm good to go. And it's like, just bringing up this fact that we're all dying sometimes makes people tense, makes people awkward. Do you think it's, awkward to bring it up in a hospital setting in a clinical context try, try bringing it up like in like a restaurant or a bar or something while you're like hanging out socially with people and all of a sudden it's like oh why are you, why are you putting a damper on the evening right why are you getting so serious here but listen learning to number our days leads us to having a wise heart. Teach us to number our days that, or so that, we may get a heart of wisdom. You guys remember the man in the parable that Jesus told who said, he was doing very well in business, he said, look at all these goods that I have. You know, I'm going to build many barns and store it up and enjoy the fruits of my labor. But God said, you fool, for this very night your soul will be required of you. He didn't do the math right. He didn't number his days properly. He failed to budget appropriately. Look, if you list all your, the things you want to spend money on, and you fail to account for how much money you actually have, you're going to end up with some problems. You need to number your dollars. 
in order that you may have a heart of wisdom. You need to account properly for the fact that I have a limited amount. If you don't do that and you act like it's infinite, right? You're going to run into some problems. And if you act like I'm going to live forever, I have unlimited days. It's as, as bad as, or as foolish rather, as acting like you have unlimited dollars. You don't have unlimited dollars and neither do you have unlimited days. You're not going to live forever. If you fail to reckon with limited days, if you fail to reckon with the fact that I do not have a never-ending sequence of days, one day I'm going to die. If you don't reckon with your limits, then you are going to live foolishly. Just like if you don't reckon with unlimited dollars, you're going to spend foolishly. You need to reckon with the limitations on your days. Teach us to number our days. Instead of infinite, infinity, everlastingness, immortality, like young people that feel they're never going to grow old, young people that feel they're never going to die, act like they're never going to have any health problems and consequences. It's foolish. Right? Put a number on that. Recognize. You don't know the exact number of days you have, but recognize there is a number. Number those days. Number those days. Make sure that you have an income column, so to speak, as well as an expense column when it comes to your days. And recognize that the resources that you have at your disposal to spend have a number. That leads you to have a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Reflect on your own mortality. Think about the fact that you're not going to live forever. Think about the fact that our life is brief. That even a thousand years is like a watch in the night to God. And that we're just like grass that just springs up and then withers again. Think about these things. Think about the fact that there is something bigger than us. Someone bigger than us. A God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Are you prepared to meet Him? Is He your dwelling place? Not just in a common way, in the sense of, does He give you air in your lungs as He does everyone else? Well, yes. <laughs> but is He your dwelling place in the sense of, have you taken refuge under the wings of Yahweh? Are you trusting in His Messiah for salvation from your sin? Consider the fact that there is sin that you need salvation from. That the reason we die is because of God's judgment. Consider this. Think on this. Why do people die? Ask yourself that question. You know how many unbelievers don't want to have a conversation like that? Don't want to go there? Why? You want to start an evangelistic conversation? with one of your loved ones, I wouldn't recommend it with a stranger, maybe. Although, to each his own, maybe go ahead. <laughs> but look, you want to start a conversation with someone you love that's not a believer? Ask them, why do you think people die? That's going to get you straight to sin. 
they're going to give you whatever answer they're going to give you. If they tell you it's sin, then you say, all right, well, then what are you going to do about your sin? And talk to them about Jesus. But more likely than not, they're going to give you some kind of nonsense about how, you know, well, our bodies are decaying, and then we die. Well, why are our bodies decaying? Why is everything coming apart? Why do we find it so traumatic? Why do we find it so difficult? Sin. Press this. This is why we're dying. Think about this. This is why everything's falling apart. This is why everything is breaking. Look, evolution is not happening. It's really not happening. Look around. The world is not getting better. The world is getting worse. The human race, like maybe medicine and stuff, we're making improvements. Technology, we're making improvements. But there's a, a decay that is getting worse. We're having more and more diseases and, and conditions and so on and so forth. Things are getting worse and worse. We're not seeing the world fixing itself and healing itself and evolving to a better state. We're seeing everything unravel. Why? Press this. Reflect on these things. Ask someone, why, what are you prepared to die? Have you thought about your own mortality? Why do you think you're going to die? What do you think is going to happen after you die? Let me turn you to Psalm 90. And let, me, let me talk to you about God who is from everlasting to everlasting. You know, thinking on these things, numbering our days, reckoning with mortality, looking at it in the face, in the eye, so to speak, thinking it through, dealing with it. This leads us to a heart of wisdom. As we reflect on these things, we will see, and this is our fifth point, that the mercy of God is our only hope. And we come now to verses 13 to 17. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. The idea here is return to being benevolent to us, to being merciful to us, to being gracious to us. The contrast is with wrath in the previous section. Or turn away from your wrath and return to blessing us, helping us, so on and so forth. The basis of it isn't that we deserve this. Look at verse 13. Have pity on your servants. Moses reflecting on death and the brevity of human life and the reason that death comes upon us being our guilt, our sin. Moses says, let us think on our own death that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And then he goes, Lord, have pity on us. He goes immediately to God's mercy, which is our only hope, our only refuge, our only solace. Interestingly, he says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. It seems that he's taking all of this life to be a night of sorts. Unless he's writing this at 11.30 p.m. and he literally means when we wake up tomorrow, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. But I don't think that's the sense of it. It seems like as he talks about passing our days under his wrath, it seems that he's metaphorically 
describing this life as the whole thing is under God's wrath. And therefore, in some sense, the whole thing is a night. Yes, we have happy moments and joy and whatnot here and there as we go through this life. But there is a sense when you really think about it that this life is, is hard and we are living in a broken world. And when you reflect on that, it's not hard to see how this is, in some sense, a night. Which means, what's interesting here is that Moses is talking about after death. When he talks about the morning. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. If we are like a dream, our whole life is like a dream, verse 5, then when we wake up, when it's morning time, and this life has been but a dream and a bad one at that, a restless night under God's wrath, when we wake up, satisfy us with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad implicitly on the other side of death for as many days as you have afflicted us. Verse 15, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Give us 70 years in a glorious resurrection morning or 80 good years with no sadness, no sorrow, no pain, no, no, no crying, no mourning. Let us rejoice in this blessing of a, a life, a mourning on the other side of this night when this passes. Do that, Lord, so that we may see that doing, that work, verse 16, that your servants may see that glorious work and behold your glorious power in giving us a morning after this night. Let your favor be upon us. When this life is over, let your favor be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Interestingly, Moses rests his hope in the pity of God, not in his earning. And he talks about when this night is over, satisfy us with a morning. Satisfy us with 70 or 80 years of goodness. Now, how, well, first of all, has God answered this prayer for pity? And how has God answered this prayer for pity? Yes, God has answered this prayer for pity, hasn't He? God has had pity on man. God has had pity on this people who spend their years under God's wrath, whose lives are like grass. God has had pity on these people whose whole life is like, in a sense, a night. And He has offered us not just a morning which will last 70 or 80 years, but an eternal morning. That we will one day wake up after a life which, in Moses' metaphor, has been something of a bad dream. And we will live with God forevermore. He has sent Christ Jesus into this world to rescue us, to ransom us, to extend to us pity in action. 
grace in action, that Christ Jesus would come. And as we talked about a couple Sunday mornings ago, be made for a little while lower than the angels. That he would take on a nature which is lower than the angels. And he would come live in this broken world. That he would enter our night. That he would enter our difficulty. That he would enter our hardships. That he would feel what it's like to live out his days under God's wrath in the sense of the way I described it earlier, living in this broken world, which is under God's wrath. That he would see people like his friend Lazarus die and have to stand there weeping at the tomb. That he would see doubtless, even though they're unnamed, many other of his friends and family members pass away. A lot of people think Joseph his earthly father died when he was a young man because there's no mention of him in his adult life, either as a young man or teenager or perhaps even as a child. It seems Joseph died. Jesus had to reckon with this fact that the years of our life are 70. Well, by reason of strength, 80. He entered into this world. He felt it. He was made like us in every respect and yet without sin. And He lived a righteous life and responded to these realities in a godly and righteous way. And he navigated his way through this world that is under God's wrath in a circumspect, holy manner in which he did not violate God's laws, but rather kept God's laws, all of them, in terms of their precepts. And then he went to the cross and satisfied the penalty that God's law requires for the breach of it, even though he had not himself broken God's law. Because of what Jesus has done, God may return to us who are under His wrath. He may grant us a morning after this night, which lasts not just 70 or 80 years, but forever. That He can satisfy us in that morning with His steadfast love. That we'll wake up, as it were, after this night, and we will be glad for many more days than He has afflicted us. The sufferings of this present time, Romans 8 says, are not worth being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He has shown His work to His servants and His glorious power to their children. We have beheld what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. We said, look at, look at what God has done in Jesus. Look at how He has returned to us in pity. Look at how He's going to satisfy us in the morning with His steadfast love. And so on and so forth. The mercy of God is our only hope. When we contemplate God's eternality and the brevity of human life, the reason for that brevity being sin and God's just wrath upon it. When we reflect on these things and number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We see that the mercy of God is our only hope. But praise God, the mercy that He extends to us is sufficient to compensate for all the pain and suffering of this life due to the broken world that we live in. The mercy of God is our only hope, but it is extended to us. It is given to us. It's not withheld, nor is it given in small measure. But God's mercy is sufficient to compensate for all our sin, for all the brokenness of the world around us. Praise God in Christ.
for this mercy.